0: The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, King Jesus, Studying the Life and Work of
1: Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Mark 5, 1-20. They came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, "'What have you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? "'I adjure you by God, do not torment me.' "'For he was saying to him, "'Come out of him, you unclean spirit.' "'And Jesus asked him, "'What is your name?' "'He replied, "'My name is Legion, for we are many.' "'And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. "'Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside.' "'sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. "'And they were afraid. "'And those who had seen it described to them "'what had happened to the demon-possessed man "'and to the pigs. "'And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. "'As he was getting into the boat, "'the man who had been possessed with demons "'begged him that he might be with him. "'And he did not permit him, but said to him, "'Go home to your friends and tell them "'how much the Lord has done for you.' and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord.
0: I was a sophomore in college um, one evening. Well, for many evenings, actually. But, but this particular evening... Uh, it was happened to be a snow emergency in the city that I was currently living in, and it, the snow had been falling for, over the last couple of days, so I'd, I've gotten used to driving on uh, slightly snow-covered roads with patches of ice, um, but I had been kind of cooped up for a few days now. Uh, we were on uh, winter break, so there weren't classes or anything that pulled me out of the dorm, so I was just kind of sitting there like a bump on the log, and I, I just I couldn't sit there anymore. I needed to go out. And I had a, really, to be honest, I had a craving for some Taco Bell. And so I I decided that I would go out and brave the storm. You know, I was convincing myself that the storm's really not that bad. Um, So I went out to my car, I brushed off what was probably a couple inches of snow and uh, I got in. I start driving. I, I get there, get my uh, quesadilla, and I'm on my way back. I'm convinced. I'm telling myself, "Okay, don't eat this thing. Don't distract yourself while you're driving. You gotta wait till you get home." And so, I'm driving. I, I'm basically the only car on the road. And uh, and as I'm driving, I'm on the home stretch. It's just like literally just a straight stretch till I get back to my dorm. And I'm driving, and then I see this car approaching me. And and it's like it's hard to see where the the line is. It's hard to see where the uh, the margins of the road are. Um, but I have a pretty good idea where I'm at. So I, I get over as far as I know, um, and and I see this car that's approaching, approaching, and then all of a sudden my car whew, just starts spinning. I didn't. I'm, I'm convinced I didn't jerk the wheel. I didn't do anything. I was on a straight road. It wasn't like I was going around a corner or anything, I was going straight and my car just starts spinning and I'm thinking, I am going to hit this car. So my car's going to 180 and I'm like, okay, at least if he hits me, he's going to hit the back end. But my car keeps going and going and going and I do a 360 and I get to the point, and I'm like, I, like, I'm thinking that I'm going to get hit right now and I, my, my spin stops and I kind of reorient myself and I realize that I'm still on my side of the road that, that this car is coming at me, but, but he's in his lane. It's not like he's trying to swerve around me. My car has just done a complete 360 and has put me right back where I started. And I realized, well, I, I walked away without a scratch. My car was fine. The other driver was fine. We didn't have to stop or anything. It was just incredibly scary. Uh, and I walked away with this story. And I realized that this story is it's kind of out there. It's a little crazy. You know, you're probably thinking like you're making it up a little bit. You're maybe at the bend of the truth. Uh, I'm trying to tell the truth as much as I can. But then again, I was going around in 360. So my, my, uh, my truth might be a little skewed. But, but the point is that this is a story that's hard to believe. As I tell you, it, you're probably, you know, shaking your head a little bit. But, but it's true. It's true. And so let me ask you, have you ever been a witness to something that was so crazy, so far out there that when you go to tell the story to other people, they have a hard time believing you just because it's so far-fetched? Well, in today's passage, this story is like that. If it were not in scripture, I would have a very hard time believing that this was true. I'd have a very hard time believing that there was a man so strong that he could bust shackles and destroy chains. I have a hard time believing that there was a man who lived in the tombs. I have a hard time believing that demons possessed a herd of pigs and sent them plummeting to their death. But this story is true. This story is absolutely true. And and I feel so confident in that because Mark, as we've been going through his, his account of the gospel, he's a no-nonsense writer. Out of all of the gospels, he, his writing is the most condensed. It typically contains the, less, the least amount of detail than all the other synoptic gospels. But not today. This passage is the most detailed account of this story. And there is a good reason for it. Now Mark is in the middle of telling us about how powerful Jesus is. Last week's passage, uh, we saw that Jesus and his disciples were facing a near-death experience. They were out at sea. A massive storm comes up on them. Water is rushing into the boat. The wind is tossing them to and fro. And and in in a frantic uh, uh, frenzy, Jesus' disciples wake up Jesus, who's asleep in the boat in the midst of this, and, and say, hey, do you not care that we're about to die? And Jesus gets up and he says three words. He says, peace, be still. And just like that, the water, the the sea turned to glass. The wind stopped blowing. The, The boat became stable. This was Jesus showing his power. He was showing his power over what was considered uncontrollable. Like we have meteorologists that tell us what the weather is going to do. Meteorologists don't tell us how to make the weather happen. They don't tell the weather what to do. And Jesus here is flipping that around. He's telling the weather what to do. He's telling the water and the, and the wind what to do. And next week, we'll see Jesus' power over death, the inevitable, the unavoidable. But in today's passage, the theme of power continues. But not only is Mark gonna show us Jesus' power, but he's gonna show us something in addition to that. William Lane puts it like this. Jesus' sovereignty, his sovereign authority, that is his power, and the quality of the salvation that he brings finds graphic illustration in this historic account. That today, Mark is showing us how strong Jesus is and to the extent or to the end in which he uses his power. This story vividly shows us what a person looks like before they meet Jesus. And it shows us the power that Jesus has to completely flip their life around. So if you would, turn to chapter 5, and we'll get started. And while you're thumbing your way there in your Bible or in your app, I'll kind of set the scene for you here. Jesus and his disciples, like I said, had just survived a massive storm. And now they're arriving at their intended destination. And you would think, you know, Jesus... Justin told us last week that Jesus was tired, ministry had been tough, there's been a lot of things going on, and so they're getting away, and you would think that they'd be going away to a place, a nice quaint little place, a little R&R, maybe a little bed and breakfast sort of a thing to, to kick back and reflect on, on what's been going on in Jesus' ministry, but that is not the case at all. Jesus chooses a destination that according to Jewish standards would have been considered absolutely Repulsive. Between the plethora of tombs filled with the dead and the pig farms, no law-abiding Jew would have intentionally come to this place. But here we see Jesus intentionally coming to this place. And they arrive, and immediately the next big thing happens. Verse 2 says, When Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. Verse 6 says, And this man ran and fell down before him. Now, if the disciples didn't need a clean pair of drawers after that violent experience in the sea, they need one now because there is a naked, blood-stained, scarred, hulk-like, demon-possessed man that is coming right at them. Just when they thought they were safe from the violent storm, another storm comes up. But this storm just happens to be in the form of a severely demon-possessed man. Now, I want to pause just for a moment because we've been talking, we've, we've been introduced to this thought of demons throughout Mark's gospel so far, um, but we haven't really spent a lot of time talking about it. We see Jesus um, interacting with Satan right after he's baptized, um, Satan comes and tempts him. Then later on, uh, Jesus' first preaching gig, he's preaching and then he, he casts, out of a de- casts out a demon from a man who's in the crowd. And then word gets out that Jesus has this power to cast out demons. So many, many people start coming to Jesus for the purpose of having demons cast out and to be healed. So much so to the point where the Pharisees are actually accusing Jesus of being demon possessed himself. Right, And so this, this theme of demons keeps on popping up, but we haven't really talked about it. But today is a day where we kind of have to hunker down and have a little discussion about this. And, and, and it's important that we do so with caution. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his preface to the Screwtape Letters, he cautions us that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So many Eastern cultures, and even some groups of Christians in the West, they have an over fascination with the demonic. They're convinced that Satan is hiding behind every bush, that Satan is behind everything that goes wrong. If your TV goes out, it's because of a demon. If your kid is disobedient, it's because of a demon. They go way overboard with this. And Kent Hughes uh, tells a pretty comical story about a group of Christians who uh, were who located out in the suburbs. They were, they were, at the start of their ministry, they were devoted to prayer and the apostles' teaching and the gospel, and they were seeing a lot of change happen. Lives were being changed. Marriages being restored, kids being discipled, um, families just loving the gospel and being on mission, but, but something happened as soon as the church leaders took their eyes off the gospel and started getting uh, infatuated with demonic, with casting out demons. They claimed themselves to be experts in exorcism and fighting off demons. And one of these Things got really out of hand one night when one of these uh, small groups got together for their Bible study and towards the end of it, they were convinced that there was a demon in the chandelier that was above them. So they proceeded in the evening to tear apart this light fixture and then they went to different parts of the city to go and bury this because they were convinced that this chandelier had a demon in it, right? This is ridiculous and people can easily go over the top with this. On the other hand, most Westerners like ourselves and myself are more dismissive of this idea of the demonic. We have a a Hollywood-influenced view of the demonic where demons are sort of folklore. They're kind of mystical. They're kind of a, a, a creation of our mind. Many people in our culture, when they hear the Bible talk about demons, they shrug it off as a primitive way. That the naive people in the Bible attempted to understand mental illness or physical illness. We think back in Bible times, they didn't understand the complexity of life. So whatever they don't know, whatever they don't understand, they just blame it on demons. Kind of a, a junk drawer term. And for some societies in the ancient world, this might be true. But not as it is represented in the Bible for even back in Bible times, they, they had the intellectual capacity to differentiate between various illnesses, whether mental or physical, and demon possession. Look back through our first four chapters of Mark, and you will see this. Take, for example, mother, uh, Peter's mother-in-law, who we meet, who's sick, or we meet the leper later on, who's sick. They don't cap, like, chalk it up to demon activity. They just say they're sick. And the Bible also differentiates between mental illness and demonic illness. If you look in chapter 3, where the scribes and the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of being demon-possessed himself, Jesus' family says, ho, 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 he's not demon-possessed, he's just out of his mind. So there's a, differ- a difference here. Or even look at Matthew four twenty four, where it says, Jesus' fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him, all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, the paralytics, and he healed them. Now the word translated as epileptics literally means to be moonstruck, or in our language to be a lunatic. So even back in Bible times, they had a clear distinction between mental illness, physical illness, emotional illness, and demonic activity. So I say all this to draw to the conclusion, to to kind of come to the common consensus that, that when Mark is talking about demons, it isn't some symbolic sort of mind construct. This is, he's talking about the reality of evil spirits here. And the Bible is clear uh, on the account of how these evil spirits came to be. The chief demon, Satan, he was a beautiful cherub created by God for the purpose of glorifying and serving God. And Satan became proud in his heart. He, he desired to be worshipped like God was worshipped. And so he led a rebellion with a third of the angels. And, and he declared war on God and opposed himself against everything that God was for. And Satan and his demons are in no way equal to God. There's, there's a, a, a massive misconception that, that evil and good are on equal playing fields, that, that they have equal power and it's going to be a battle to the end. No, Satan and his demons are considerably less powerful than the almighty God. And one day, there will be, they will be subject to God's final and absolute judgment where they will be destroyed forever. But for now, Satan and his demons prowl among the earth with a goal of undoing everything that God has done. And I realize there are many more things that can be said about the topic, but I want to refrain from getting too deep into demonology because I'm afraid that if we do so, we will miss what Mark is trying to tell us. We'll miss the purpose of this text. Mark doesn't write this text to promote a fascination or a preoccupation with the demonic. That's not his purpose. C.J. Mahaney says it like this, that Mark is assuming the reality of the demonic and, his, and he is graphically displaying the intent of the demonic in this passage, but this story isn't about the demons. This story isn't even about the demon-possessed man. The story is about the man who arrives on shore with sovereign authority over the demonic and brings a quality of salvation that is unmatched. This story is about the uniqueness of Jesus Christ as the Son of God. The story is about the authority of Jesus over the demonic. This is a story about Jesus' compassion towards people in misery, to those who are hopeless. And in order for us to understand the significance of this story, of this passage, we have to get a handle on just how miserable this demon-possessed man is. James Edwards, in his commentary, says this, the description of this demoniac is one of the most lamentable stories of human wretchedness in the Bible. He's saying that this could very well be the most miserable man in all of Scripture, and that is no small claim, because as I'm sure you're aware, the Bible has an abundance of people who are absolutely miserable, even in the book of Mark, up to where we've been so far, we see this leper whose whose health has betrayed him. He's literally a dead man living, and he's cut off from society. Or if you go back to the Old Testament, you, you'll meet this man named Job who who he was a guy who had it all. He had a family, he had a great business, he had a great home. Everything in his life was great. He had great friends, and one day, all of that vanished. His kids were killed. His home was raided. His livelihood was destroyed. His his wealth vanished. His health was ruined. And to top it off, his wife and his closest friends were trying to pin all of this on him—that it was his fault. At one of the darkest points in the story of Job, he is found sitting in the rubble, in the in the rubble of ashes and dust, and he is—it's just a, a portraying him sitting in his misery, sitting in the fallenness, the, the destruction in which he's just experienced and he is covered from head to toe in sores and he takes a broken piece of pottery and he's just scratching at these sores as he sits in these ashes for some sort of relief and to top it off if, if that wasn't bad enough his wife comes out and he says Job what what are you doing why are you putting up with this you're better off to just curse God and die Job, he knew misery. He knew it very well, but this demoniac knew it all the better. Every word that Mark uses in verses 3 to 5 are used to display this man's misery. This man is the epitome of misery. This condition is horrid. It is heartbreaking. Verses 3 through 5 gives us insight into this man's dreadful life. Let's just take a look and read 3 to 5. It says that he lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. And this was so difficult for him that night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Here we have a guy with uncontrollable superhuman strength, who poses a deep fear for his friends to the extent where they, would, they feel obligated to tie him up. But these shackles that they put on him, the chains that they bind him with, will not be strong enough to hold him down. They, he will break through everything that they try to bind him with. And so Mark makes it clear that no matter what people try to do, no matter who tries to help this man, no one can constrain him, let alone can this man constrain himself. And since he has no one who can help him, he can't find any relief, and he's viewed as a a threat to society, he is cast out to the fringes. This is much similar to the leper who we've met back in chapter one, where he was also pushed out to the fringes of society. But in the case of this leper, he would have been in a colony of other lepers, other people who were like him, other people that he could maybe interact with. Uh, maybe it's not very good company, but albeit he could talk to other people. But this man that we see, this demoniac, he was driven out and he was, had nobody. He had nobody to talk to. He lived among the tombs. There was no one else to talk to, no one to share struggles with, no one to interact with, no one to sympathize with him. His neighbors were dead people. This man was completely isolated from human life, and this is only the beginning of this man's misery because the external voices that he was hearing from his friends, you're a nuisance, you're a problem, we've got to get rid of you, we've got to do something about you, started becoming his own mental inward thoughts that I am this horrible man. I am helpless, I'm useless, there's nothing I can do, and so he was so overrun with self-loathing that he would sit in the tombs, he would go out on the mountains, and night and day, he would cry. Because that's all he knew how to do. All he would do was cry out, and no one would come. And so he started trying to self-medicate. He would cut himself with stones, scar upon scar, misery compounding upon misery, day after day, night after night. This man, for the rest of his life, knew that he was going to be miserable. And Mark shows us the source of this man's misery. In verse 2, this man is identified to have an unclean spirit. But when you look at verse 9, it's very clear that this man is severely possessed and tormented by thousands of demons. What makes this man the most miserable of men is the degree in which he is being unrelentingly tormented by the demons. The demons are the source of his supernatural strength which led him to be isolated and to live among the tombs, causing him to continuously harm himself and try as he may, he cannot escape them. He can't escape the torment and the misery that these demons inflict on him because day by day, these demons are growing stronger and stronger. They have more of a pull, more of a sway with this man where he is. their influence is greater and greater on his life, making him all the more miserable. And, and Mark wants us to see something. He makes it very clear that, that the strength of this demon is so, so great. And, and the efforts of, of humans to help him are so futile that nobody can do this. He, no one can help him. He says twice, no one could do anything about this. No one could deliver or save or relieve this tormented man from the evil and the painful implications that it brings upon him. Can you imagine the fear of the townspeople knowing that there is a man on the loose that is like this? No one can contain him. He's lurking in the shadows. Imagine the fear when they would have encountered this man. Imagine the terror mothers have for their children, that this man could pop out and he could go off the handle. And they couldn't do anything about it. This man had a a condition that was untamable and unalterable until The day this man looked out at the sea and he saw a single boat coming toward him and he knew, which is slightly comical because in the last story, we see the disciples in the boat just after Jesus calms the storm and they're asking the question, who is this that has authority over the wind and the waves? Who is this guy that's in the boat with us? And the answer to that question is provokedly. provided by this demoniac when he says in verse 7, Jesus, son of the most high God, he knows the answer. The demons know exactly who this is, and they tremble before him because they know that it's Jesus. They know that Jesus has the authority over them. And I want you to see this. I want this to be very clear to you, that there is one person right now who's completely in charge it's not the man who's trembling, it's not the demons who are tormenting this man, who are destroying his insides, it is Jesus. And Jesus asks for this man's name, and he says in verse 9, he says that we are legion for we are many. That, that's pretty creepy. If you ask somebody their name and they respond with a plural uh, sort of response, that's, that's going to be a little frightening. But this doesn't surprise Jesus. This should actually draw our attention to the intensity of the demonic strength that's concentrated into this one man. A Roman legion would consist of about 6,000 foot soldiers back in those days. So this man evidences an inconceivable concentration of demonic strength. This isn't just one stray demon that Jesus had already cast out before. This isn't just a, you know, a one-time thing. This is a great concentration. There's so many thousands of demons in this man inhabiting this one individual. And just like Jesus would drive out one demon, he drives out the multitude of demons with one word. Whether it was one demon or thousands of demons, that's all it takes for Jesus, one sentence Whenever Jesus encounters demons, no matter how many or how great or how powerful they are, this is a no contest event. They are sent out. They are expelled in one word. And once again, Jesus' greatest power is greatly greatly displayed. Jesus' unique power and authority are, as he fulfills part of we see Jesus' unique power and authority as he fulfills part of the reason that Jesus has come. In chapter 3 of Mark, in verse 27, Jesus says that I have come to bind the strong man. I have come to plunder the house of the strong man. And so this is precisely what Jesus is doing. He is binding the strong man. He is with straining. he is constraining the evil spirits that are in this man. And in this instant, he shows just how powerful he is and just how weak is evil how weak demons and satan are in comparison so these demons they asked jesus don't don't torment us don't send us out of the country would you let us go into this herd of pigs that's nearby and jesus grants the request of this legion and a stampede takes place look at verse 13 so jesus gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd numbering about 2000 and they rushed down the steep bank Into the sea, and they drowned in the sea. As if this insanely strong Hulk man wasn't unbelievable enough, now this whole story takes a new dimension of unbelievable, where a slew of swine, 2,000 of them, go racing down a hill and plummeting into the sea. If you were telling your buddy about this story, he would probably be doubting the validity of the story up to this point already, but you'd start talking about this massive stampede of pigs, and for sure he would not believe a word you say after that. He's thinking that this is probably a tall tale, you're pulling my leg, but this is not the case. This is what happened. By allowing the demons enter into the pigs, thousands of pigs died that day, which for you bacon enthusiasts would be a pretty sad day. I'm sure. And you can't help but think, sorry, you can't help but think that this is probably one of the, this is one of the most obscure things that happens in all of Scripture. And in, why, and it begs the question, why? Why would Jesus send demons into pigs? Why would they go stampeding off? Well, Mark doesn't give us an explicit answer, but perhaps this is, This is the proof that that Jesus did actually cast out these demons from this man. This is proof that when Jesus said, come out of him, the demons did in fact come out of him. Or perhaps this would provide some assurance to this man that the demons would not be coming back. That they had plummeted to their demise along with the pigs and they would no longer occupy his body once again. But I think that the most compelling reason why this is included in Mark's account of this story... Is that Jesus sent these demons into this herd of pigs to show everyone who is watching what these demons were up to inside of this man? Jesus displays that this legion's intentions were to bring destruction to this man. Just think about that. There were enough demons in this one man to send 2,000 pigs to their demise. That was all packed and compressed and condensed into one man. Just imagine the torture that this man went through. I said it before, but demons are opposed to everything that God is for. And God is for human flourishing. God is for a life lived to its fullest. Jesus wants to see this man thrive. He, he wants to see this man liberated from the evil that has him trapped. God wants that. But the only way to, to give this to that man is for this man to have these demons extracted, to be, have these demons cast out of him. And so this provides a great spectacle for those who are onlooking. Verse 14 through 16 shows us the reaction of these locals. Let's, let's read uh, verses 14 through 16. It says, the herdsmen, they fled, and they told it in the city and the country. And people came out to see what happened. Because these people, they don't believe what they're telling is true. So they've come out to see with their own eyes. And they came to, see, to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, and he look. He wasn't a madman anymore. He was clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. People didn't believe, so they came out to see what Jesus was after. They they came to see for themselves, and when they get to the scene of the incident, they come to find, much to their disbelief, this man who was once once running crazy, who posed a threat to everyone in their neighborhood is now sitting down in his right mind. He's clothed and he's being there. He's being normal. He's clothed in his right mind and this is freaking them out. It seems inconceivable. They, they just imagine the contrast, right, of this man that they knew before who was once running. He was crying out night and day, cutting himself. He was in agony and torture and pain and misery. And now he's sitting there in his right mind. It scared the lights out of them. There had to be a great conflict within their heart and within their minds because right now they're seeing the most powerful man that they've ever seen before being subdued by someone who is more powerful. They've never met anyone who could trump this man. No one, like I've said already, no one could bind this man, but now that man has come and he has set him in his right mind. There was a trailer for the new Batman vs. Spider-Man movie that got leaked out this week. I don't know if you saw it. It's been bouncing around the interwebs. Um, and this opening line of of this trailer, um, the question is posed. This is what it says. "That is it really surprising? It's kind of got this growly Batman voice. Is it really surprising? Is it really surprising that the most powerful man in the world should be a figure of controversy? What? what a great question. Is it really surprising that the most powerful man in the world should be a figure of great controversy? And that is so true of the story. This is so true of Jesus. Look at this controversy unfold. Look at the different reactions that people have to Jesus. On one hand, you have these locals who are certain that Jesus is up to no good. They've seen power before. They've seen what power does to people. They don't need to look any further than this formerly possessed man to know that that power corrupts, that power destroys, that power brings people to their demise. They see how power consumes and then destroys. But they didn't understand that Jesus himself was power. They didn't understand him and they were certain they couldn't control him so they are afraid of him. They are fearful To the effect that Jesus might have on their soul or on their life. They're thinking, all they're thinking about at this point is how much money someone just lost from all these pigs being dumped off a cliff. That's all they can think about. That's all they're concerned about. They can't even comprehend at this point what Jesus has just done for this miserable man. And so when we read in verse 17, we see some of the saddest. Words in all the Bible. Take a look. It says, And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. They were begging Jesus to leave. Did you guys see that coming? Didn't you think that there would be a celebration, that Jesus just frees a man from all this demonic possession? This madman is set right. Shouldn't there be a parade, a celebration? Shouldn't there be a revival? Don't you see people lifting Jesus up in the air and celebrating, chanting, Jesus Christ, Son of the Most High God? Don't you see that happening? But none of that happens. They begged Jesus to leave if they would have only known who this was. Now, I want to just pause for a minute and, and show to you the genius of, of Mark's gospel as he writes. Do you guys remember back to the parable of, of the sower, of the seeds, the good soil, the bad soil? Well, this, this parable is coming to life. These people are the people that Jesus is referring to in chapter four, verse 18, when he says, they are those who hear the word, or in this case of the people who have seen this man set straight, they are the people who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and they choke out the work and it proves unfruitful. How terribly sad this is. These people are standing in front of Jesus, son of the most high God, and they're asking him to leave. They have no idea what he could do for their lives. They have no idea what Jesus could do to make their lives so much better, so much more meaningful and significant and joyful. They have no idea. They have no idea of the great purpose that they could be lo- lo- They have no idea of the great purpose they could be living for. And so they ask Jesus to go. And Jesus complies. He immediately leaves. He gets on his boat. But on the other hand of this controversy, the other reaction we see to Jesus is completely different. This man who was healed by Jesus wants wants to make sure Jesus knows that he doesn't feel the same way about Jesus as his fellow townsmen. So this man starts to get in the boat with Jesus. He's thinking that at this point, I'm all in. Jesus has completely changed my life. There's no going back to the life that I had lived. He's thinking, I'm going to follow this Jesus wherever he goes. I'm going to do whatever he says. I'm going to go. I'm going to follow. I'm going to do everything. But as he's climbing to the boat, Jesus says to him, I'm sorry, you, you can't come. Can you, can you imagine the sting of those words? This man had just, he, he's indebted to Jesus eternally. And he's now being told that he can't come with him. It, it causes us to ask the question, why? Why wouldn't Jesus let this man come along with him? But just because this guy wasn't permitted to get in the boat with Jesus doesn't mean that he couldn't follow Jesus. Jesus has a very special plan and a very strategic plan for this man. Let's look at verse 19. And Jesus did not permit him to come to the boat, but he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Jesus is commissioning this man to go out, go home, go tell your friends and family of what the Lord has done and how he has mercy on you. Jesus says to this particular man, no, 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 you thought you were going to be extracted from your hometown. You thought you were going to leave. You're going to pick up roots and and start a new life. Jesus says, no, I've I've got a, a different idea for your life. I didn't save you. I didn't deliver you. I didn't, I didn't cast out those demons so that you could be plucked out of your hometown. I did that so, so that you would be sent back into your town and tell your people about what Jesus can do. And this man does. And in verse 20, he, he goes back home and he begins to proclaim in all the Decapolis how much Jesus has done for him. And everyone marvels. I bet they marveled. the shock on their face. They knew that this man was once a madman living out in the tombs. He's probably got the scars still to prove it, that I was once this madman, and now Jesus has set me right. He has given me a new mind. He has given me a new heart, and people look to this, and this is a testimony. This is his testimony about what Jesus can do. And they're shocked and they're wondering. They see this man and how, how, how big the contrast is from his life before Jesus and his life after Jesus. And they're probably wondering, if Jesus can do this for this guy, what would it look like for Jesus to have an effect on my life? What would it look like for Jesus to get a hold of me? What sort of darkness can he make light? What sort of bondage could he make me free of? And so he goes and people marvel and are struck in awe of what Jesus can do. And this, this man, he is in this parable of the good soil. He is the good soil. He heard, he saw and experienced Jesus. He received what the word of God said and he took it in himself and he was changed by it. And the harvest he produces is magnificent. We know this because the next time that Jesus comes into the area in chapter six, he has to work a miracle in order to feed everyone who's gathered to hear him teach. Jesus may have been asked to leave, but Jesus left someone behind who would tell everyone about what Jesus has done, that that Jesus has sent this man home with a powerful testimony and people, their, their ears are perked, they're interested in what Jesus can do. And so as I close, I just want to present two things. To those of you who are believers, who are Christians in this room, I know a lot of this has um, just been kind of working our way through the passage. I haven't been able to, to kind of work this into application or get down deep in the heart. I'm, I'm praying that the Spirit would do that where I'm, I'm weak, that He would do that strongly. But there's two things that I want to impress upon you Christians in the room, and I have an invitation for those of you who would not consider yourselves to be Christians. So first, to the Christians, I want to to point out to you that this story of this demon-possessed man serves as a reminder of our own condition prior to us coming to Christ. That this is a vivid picture of what you and I look like before we put our faith in Jesus. This man's life is an illustration of our hearts, of the wretchedness, of the misery, of the pain and the torment, of the sorrow and the grief that we've experienced in our lives. Which leaves us feeling isolated and helpless and miserable. Our pain and our guilt continually seems to compound and compound. We are filled with Darkness. We had no hope. There, we were helpless. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that we were tormented by demons. I'm not saying that we were possessed by demons like this man was. But I am saying that we were slaves to sin. That we were under the influence of demonic. That since the fall in Genesis three, that there has been uh, for all mankind a, a sort of influence toward the demonic. That we've been bound in our sin. that we have been under the control of sin, that we have been bound and shackled in our sin. And sin has controlled our lives. It's made us miserable people. In, in uh, Ephesians 2, Paul reminds the believers, this is what he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. That is Satan he's referring to. We were under the influence of Satan at the spirit that is now at work in the Sons of Obedience of Disobedience. That Satan as sin has an impact on our life leads us into disobedience. This was the condition of our souls, and it was utterly helpless. We could not do anything to help ourselves. No human effort could free us. Not even the most strong-willed people could break these chains. That we were in sin's grip, that we were in the grip of death. John Calvin says it like this, that though we are not tortured by the devil like this man was... Yet the devil holds us as slaves until the Son of God delivers us from his tyranny. All naked, torn, and disfigured, we wander about until he restores us to the soundness of the mind of Christ. And Jesus does just that. Jesus restores us to a soundness of mind. Colossians 1.13 says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he has transferred us into the kingdom of light. Jesus comes. He sees our misery. He moves towards those who are in misery. He sees the effect that sin has on us. He sees the destruction that awaits us, and Jesus steps in. Jesus does what no one else can do. Jesus takes our place. Jesus himself becomes cursed by evil. He feels the weight of sin, the agony of misery. He feels it all, all of sin's frustrations, all of the baggage that sin brings. Jesus feels it all upon him as it is placed on him on the cross. It was there where Jesus Christ becomes sin. He takes all of the torture, all the evil, all the sin that is binding us and he puts it upon himself. And he bears the destruction that awaits all of us. It is by this sacrifice, it is by the power of God that Christ is raised from the dead. That that sin and death could not bind Jesus. That Jesus was more powerful and he defeated sin and death. Colossians 2.15 says that he has disarmed the rulers and authorities. He's speaking about evil rulers and authorities, and he has put them to shame by triumphing over them. 1 Corinthians 15.57, Thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is victory in Jesus. Jesus is the conqueror. And this is good news. This is good news for all. Because we were destined for a life of misery and destruction due to our sin. We were unable to do anything about it. We were physically incapable of moving ourselves from misery into less misery. And Jesus Christ comes in, and by his power and his grace, he frees us from the chains of sin and the shackles of death and misery, and he gives us a new life, a life contrasted, much like this demoniac, of a, a life that went from darkness and pain and agony to a life of freedom, a life of light, a life of joy, of abundant joy and satisfaction in the riches and depth of Jesus Christ our Lord. But not only does this passage give Christians as Christians a vivid illustration of what it looks like, what we looked like before we were saved, before Christ came and rescued us and delivered us. This passage also gives us a vivid illustration of what we are, gives us a vivid illustration of the mission that God calls us to. J.C. Ryle comments on this verse. He says, not all are intended to preach, but all can walk in the steps of this man we have been reading He's saying that we don't need to get up on the stage and preach. We don't need to go out on the streets and preach. We need to live a life where we are communicating what God has done to us, the mercies that Jesus has had on us. And calls us to be like this man who is liberated, who is freed from the bondage of sin, a man who experienced the freedom that Christ has brought. The call is this, to go home and tell your friends, how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. That, that is the call of the Christian. This is what it looks like for us to do. This is what we are supposed to do in response to the great work that Christ has done in us. Share your life, share your story, share how Christ has freed you from the dominion of darkness and has brought you into his marvelous light. Share how Jesus has made you a new person. Share this in humility, knowing that you were completely unable to do this on your own accord, that this was a work of God. And do it prayerfully, that God would do the same to those who you are sharing this with. There is an explicit call in this passage to go. And let me just remind you here that that this whole story back in chapter 4 starts with Jesus saying to his disciples, let us go to the other side of the sea. Jesus set across the sea. He weathered the storm for the purpose of reaching this man. But, But when you zoom out to see the cosmic story of redemption that Jesus is doing here, he doesn't just go through the storm. He doesn't just go across the sea to get to this one man. Jesus emptied himself completely. Jesus left heaven and came down to the most miserable of places, places where sin was running rampantly, where sin had its grips on all human life. And Jesus entered into the most miserable of places to free us from our sin. If Jesus did this for us, what's stopping us from walking across the street? What's stopping us from going to our coworker and telling him of what Jesus has done? If if we believe what Jesus has done is absolutely true, that he's delivered us from darkness, that he's loosened the grip of death and sin, and he's brought us into light, he's given us freedom in Jesus, then what's stopping us from sharing this good news? Now, as I close, I want to offer an invite to those of you who are, are non-believers, who, who wouldn't consider yourselves to be Christian. And I, I, I realize that we've been talking about demons and that might be kind of weird for you, a little uncomfortable. I assure you, if this is your first time, we don't do this often. Um, but I don't want you to get hung up on that. What I want for you to see is that Jesus Is the only one who can change people. Jesus is the only one who has the power to take someone who's in misery, who has had a dreadful life, who has had the most devastating of circumstances, and completely flip that around in a story of redemption. What I want for you to see is that Jesus takes people who are on beyond repair. People who no one else can fix and he fixes them and he frees them from their sin and death and he gives them a new purpose. So I want to urge you this morning to don't make the same mistake that those those townsmen made. Don't Don't ask Jesus to leave just yet. Don't push him away. Don't beg him to move away from you. I want to invite you to stick around. I want you to I want you to stick around and find out what Jesus is like. Come be be part of our community. Come see and hear the great works that Jesus has done. This room is full of testimonies of Jesus saving grace. So I beg you, please don't send Jesus off just yet. If anything, draw near to him. Ask him. Ask him what it would look like if he got a hold of your life. Today, as we come to the table, we do so remembering that Christ's body was broken for us. We remember the destruction that Jesus faced on the cross to pay for our sins, to atone for our sins. But we also come with hearts of gladness because on the third day, Jesus rose victorious over death. That death was not the end. Death had, did not have the final say. That Jesus was stronger than death. And he rose in power. And he is now seated at the right hand of the God. And he will come again to judge the living of the dead. And the day that he does so, there will be a great feast. There will be a great celebration. There will be a great celebration of what Jesus has done. Of his power and of his grace. And the mercy that he has on sinners so today we come to the table with those two things in mind we come knowing the sacrifice but we come with joyful hearts knowing that this is a meal of victory let's pray Heavenly Father we thank you for Christ our Lord the man who who pursued us in our misery that emptied himself of all the things of heaven all the comforts all the bliss all the perfection and joy he became like a man like us and he lived among us and he was he experienced the same sort of misery and and torment and temptation that we face and, and on the cross our sin was laid upon him and he felt the weight of wretchedness he felt the the weight of our misery and of our grief And in that, Lord, by that work, by the work of Christ, we have been purchased. His blood has bought us. He has brought us from darkness. He has brought us from the powers of the air of the dominion of darkness and into the power of Jesus Christ. And in that power, we know that you want to see humans flourish. And the only way for us to flourish is in you. And so, Lord, as we take in this bread, as we take in this wine, would it be a seed that dwells deep within us that brings forth fruit? Because of your gospel, because of your truth, it would be like the man who, who had been delivered that we see the effect that Jesus has on people. We could know how how you contrast who we were before Jesus and who we are after Jesus, and we would know the purpose for which you've called us to make your name known and make your fame spread throughout the land. Would you set our feet on mission? Would you make us good missionaries in our cities? Would you, would you bring forth all of these things because Jesus has been the missionary for us, that he has come to pursue us? We ask this in your son's name, Jesus Christ,
1: our Lord, amen.